الرحمن الرحيم إن الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونعوذ بالله من شرور أنفسنا ومن سيئات أعمالنا من يحده الله فلا مضل له ومن يدلل فلا هادي له وأشهد أن لا إله إلا الله وحده لا شريك له وأشهد أن محمدا عبده ورسوله Really the praise belongs to Allah, we praise Him, seek His assistance and forgiveness and we seek refuge in Allah from the evil of ourselves and the evil consequences of our deeds. Whenever Allah guides, there is no one that can lead Him astray and whenever Allah leads astray, there is no one that can guide Him. I bear witness that nothing deserves to be worshipped except Allah alone and that he has no partners and I bear witness that Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam is his slave servant and his messenger we would like to begin our first class concerning the topic of fiqh al-hadith Excellent to check it now. We would like to uh, begin our first class this evening in this topic of fiqh al-hadith or the fiqh that is derived from the hadith of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. This topic may seem a little strange or it might be new to some of us because perhaps we have heard or we have studied or read about the various uh, sciences of Islam, Al-Ulum, Al-Shara'iyah and we know that there is the science of Tafsir, explanation of Quran and the science of hadith, the study of the sayings and practices and approvals of the Prophet wasallam, and there is Islamic jurisprudence, al-fiqh and there is al-aqidah, the study of the Islamic system of belief and al-seerah, the biography of the Prophet wasallam, and so on but usually if we look in the books of Islam we will find al-fiqh as one subject and al-hadith or al-sunnah as a separate subject but we want to combine these two topics al-fiqh and al-hadith and we want to do this for a reason I would like to explain just briefly the reason for this and it is because originally the earlier generations of the Muslims, the companions of the Prophet 
and those who came after them, their students, the Tabi'un, and the students, and their students, Atba'a Tabi'un, and so on, they, when they heard any saying of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, or came to know about any of his practices, or those things that he approved of, they used to use that as a basis of guidance, and as a basis for deriving the principles of Islam in any matter, whether it was in worship, or in business dealings, in social life, or whatever. They used to look at the text of the Qur'an and the hadith of the Prophet and they used to derive from it the guidance. They used to make their decisions and rulings based on the Qur'an and the Sunnah of the Prophet But in the later generations, after the great Imams, especially those who are well known to us today, who are known as the four Imams, Al-Imam Abu Hanifa, and Al-Imam Malik ibn Anas, and Imam Muhammad ibn Idris al-Shafi'i, and Imam Ahmed ibn Hanbal, rahimahumullah, may Allah have mercy on all of them. After their time, in the later generations, the people began to study the religion in a different way. Instead of looking at the hadith of the Prophet or the text of Qur'an, they used to start with the decision already decided, and then they will search for proof to support the decision or the conclusion that they have already come to. They found in their madhabs certain rulings, and they followed that madhab and tried to find the proofs to support it. But in the earlier generations, and the imams themselves, they didn't used to start with a conclusion and then try to support it. They used to start with the evidence and then derive the conclusion from the text of Qur'an and Sunnah. I hope this idea is clear because it's a very important concept. And this study of fiqh al-hadith is based on this idea that fiqh actually should be derived from the revelation of Qur'an and from the authentic sunnah. Not for us to pre-conclude and then search for the evidence from Qur'an that might support our conclusions or our deductions or our own uh, rulings that we have been that have been passed down to us, and actually we found in the books of fiqh of the later generations many times the opinions uh, of the scholars of fiqh are not based on authentic hadith, or they are not based on correct interpretation of a particular ayah of Quran. And if we look from one madhhab to another, we will find that there are many differences of opinion. So the right thing for us to do is not to adhere strictly to the madhab that was passed down to us by our parents or our ancestors, but it is to confirm the correctness of those opinions, to confirm them, not search in any way that we can to support them, but to search and make sure that those rulings or those conclusions that we have come to that they are actually supported by authentic proofs and evidences. So in this class, inshallah, we would like to take some of the hadith of the Prophet that have been reported in reliable sources. And particularly the book that we will study, inshallah, primarily is a book called Taysir Al-Allam 
شرح عمدة الأحكام بل شيخ عبد الله ابن عبد الرحمن ابن صالح آل بسام and this sheikh is presently teaching in the masjid in Mecca al masjid al-haram and he is one of the leading scholars in Saudi Arabia today and he has written this book as a means to deliver the fiqh of Islam to the Muslims in a simple way by examining the hadith of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam and then uh, seeing what rulings are correctly derived from those hadith of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam. This book is an explanation of a previous book, Umdatul Ahkam, which is in fact a book containing many hadith related to the ahkam, the rulings or the laws of Islam, related to ibadat or acts of worship, prayer and fasting and charity and so on, as well as muamalat or dealings, business, social and otherwise. That book, Umdatul Ahkam, is comprised of hadith only from Al-Bukhari and Muslim. The majority of the hadith in that book, Umdatul Ahkam, are muttafakun alayh. That is, they have been reported by both Bukhari and Muslim. And there are few hadith that have only been reported by Al-Bukhari or only reported by Muslim. But in any case, the majority of the hadith you can find in both Al-Bukhari and Muslim, and those which are not in both books are at least in one of them. So that means that all of the hadith in the text of Umdat al-Ahkam, they are authentic hadith. And this book that we will study, inshallah, is an explanation of those hadith in which he has considered and examined the rulings that can be derived from those hadith and sometimes compared the differences of opinion amongst the uh, main uh, legal schools, that is the madahib. Perhaps also we will look at another book called Al-Dura, Al-Bahiyya fi al-Masail al-Fiqiyya which is a very small book a summarized book of fiqh actually a book of fiqh by the great Imam Muhammad ibn Ali al-Shawkani uh, from Yemen and in that book he has summarized the rules of fiqh in very brief, in paragraphs every topic he has summarized maybe in one or two pages sometimes in just a few paragraphs and we will look at it just as a summary of the issues as we go along to see the summary and then we will examine the hadith from Taysir al-Alam and the discussion of the shaykh of those hadith and the rulings derived from them insha'Allah uh, let me begin briefly by mentioning some points related to the science of Islamic jurisprudence al-fiqh al-Islami and first mentioning that the word fiqh it literally means in Arabic language fahm fiqh in Arabic language means fahm you say fahima when someone understood something you say fahima ashaya he understood that thing so fiqh literally linguistically it means understanding generally in the technical terminology or mustalah it refers to the science of deducing Islamic laws from evidence found in the sources of Islamic law. That is, technically, fiqh means the study of how to deduct or derive Islamic rulings from the sources, the Quran and the Sunnah primarily, and the other sources, ijma, consensus, uh, tiyas, analogy, and so on. 
So initially, the fiqh actually meant the science of deriving meanings from the Qur'an and Sunnah, and that's how we want to study it today. It also refers to those rulings or those decisions that have been derived as a body of law. That body of law is also called fiqh. When we say we study fiqh, we may mean we are studying the books that contain those rulings that have been deducted and derived by the scholars of Islamic jurisprudence. So it has two meanings. One, the manner or the science of deducting rulings, and two, the rulings themselves, the body of rulings that are contained in books are also called Secondly, as to the status of fiqh, its position or station and its importance, Islam gives emphasis to organization of relationships between man and his creator in terms of ibadah, worship such as prayer, fasting, charity, and other such matters. Dhikr, remembrance of Allah, dua, invocation, qira'ah, tilawatul Qur'an, recitation of Qur'an, and so on. The organization of these acts, or our relationship between the human being and the Creator, which is called al-ibadah, uh, Islam gives great emphasis to this. As well, Islam gives emphasis to organizing and stabilizing and formalizing the relations between human beings and other human beings, defining their tasks, their rights, responsibilities, and so on. And this is called al-mu'amalat, the interaction or interrelations between the people. In all of this, the objective of organizing these relations is to establish justice in the earth so that there may be peace and order in the society and that people may live according to the way that Allah has ordained for them to fulfill their obligation in this life and to earn Allah's reward in the next life, insha'Allah. One of the special characteristics of the Islamic law in comparison to other systems of law is that the Islamic law is based upon divine revelation, whereas human law is based on the opinions of the people or based on the wills, the will and the wishes of those who have power over others. They are able to dictate to them what should be the law, what is right and what is wrong according to their own feelings. But in Islam, the Islamic law, the Sharia, it doesn't have anything to do with the wishes or the will of individuals but it has something to do with the will of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. He is the one who has revealed the Qur'an and He is the one who has sent the prophets, peace be upon them all, to guide the people in this life and to give them instructions and rules and guidelines on how they should live and how they should interact between themselves and how should be their relation with their Lord, their Creator, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Also, it is important to note that the Islamic law or the Sharia, or not the Sharia, but the fiqh, the Islamic fiqh, it has run through many stages from the time of the Prophet ﷺ up until our time. And some of the scholars in their discussion of the establishment of Islamic fiqh, 
they said that there are of those stages, there's the foundation stage which was in the time of the Prophet ﷺ. When the fiqh was originally established based on the revelation that came to the Prophet ﷺ and his practices and his instructions to the people. The second stage was the establishment, the firm establishment of the fiqh which took place in the time of the Khulafa al-Rashidin, that is Abu Bakr and Umar, Uthman and Ali, radiallahu anhum ajma'in. Then the next stage was the building stage, which was during the Umayyad dynasty, and then the flowering stage, where the fiqh was built up even further during the Abbasid dynasty, and then the consolidation stage, when things were brought together and consolidated, and that was uh, at the decline of the Abbasid dynasty, until the last of their uh, rulers, who was murdered at the hands of the Mongols in the middle of the 13th century of the Christian era. And finally, the stagnation and decline era, which is up until our time today, in which the, uh, the fiqh, or the scholars of fiqh, were, you can say, in a different um, frame of thinking, in a different level of scholarship, and they began to uh, lose the spirit and the life of the fiqh, and the itch to have to derive uh, rulings based on the circumstances that the people were facing at that time. In the first stage, of course, it was during the lifetime of the Prophet ﷺ, the rulings were very clear. If anyone didn't understand, they used to ask him, ﷺ. In the time of the Khulafa al-Rashidin, the Sahaba were many, they were present, and they could consult amongst themselves, the scholars from amongst them, and the leaders of the Muslims, they were able to consult and to uh, discuss those issues until they came to the correct conclusions based on the Qur'an and the Sunnah and what they understood from their own experience with the Prophet Today we reached the point where many of the people have come to the conclusion that there is no need and there is no right for anyone to make ijtihad but those rulings that have been previously concluded by the early scholars particularly the, those who were the founders of the main four schools of law or the four madhahib many of the people think that these rulings are permanent, lasting and forever and there is no room uh, for any any consideration of the present circumstances that the people are living under. In any case, alhamdulillah, in our time there are some scholars who are going back to the original sources and they are considering the specific circumstances that we are living in and trying to uh, reflect on the evidence from the Quran and from the authentic sunnah and the opinions or the positions of the companions of the Prophet and they are making ijtihad uh, in line with the model that they found in the time of the Prophet ﷺ and those who came immediately after. Based on this, we need to look at, at least briefly, in passing, what are the sources of Islamic legislation so that in our 
in the course of our study of fiqh and the fiqh of hadith in looking at these hadith of the Prophet ﷺ, we will understand what are the proper and authentic and rightful sources that we are allowed to go to and we are allowed to take from. So that we will keep this in mind as we examine the different opinions and the rulings of the previous scholars and the present scholars, whether they uh, stick closely to the madhabs or whether or not they make ijtihad from amongst those scholars of today. The first source of Islam is the Qur'an, uh, and it has been unanimously accepted as being authentic and preserved intact by all of the Muslims except the Rafidah or the Shia. And it is from their madhab or their aqidah or their religion uh, that they believe that after the passing of the Prophet ﷺ, the companions radiallahu anhum ajma'een uh, discarded much of the Qur'an and only a small portion of it remains with us today. This is their belief, this is their opinion, this is their religion. But as we know, Allah promised to preserve the Qur'an and in fact He has done so and it is the first and primary source of Islam along with and not separate from the authentic Sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ which is also revelation and it is equally a source of legislation just as the Qur'an without there being any difference between them except that the Qur'an is, was, was meant to be recited in the Salat and it is a means of ibadah, recitation of the Qur'an whereas the Sunnah is not recited in the prayers and it is not a source of worship any recitation or reading of the Sunnah and there are some other differences but in terms of uh, from the perspective of revelation and legislation both the Qur'an and the Sunnah are together as revelation and together as a source of legislation. After the Qur'an and authentic sunnah, there's the sayings or the practices of the Sahaba, the companions of, of Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa the companions of the Messenger of Allah, and their sayings or their opinions either as a group or individually was considered as a third or secondary but important source of law. Whatever they agreed upon, it is binding on us. And if they differed, then we may take from the best of their opinions that we come into contact with. If they are united on an opinion, it is considered to be consensus or ijma, And this is an important source of law. And where they differed or they had different opinions on a single issue, each opinion yani, is referred to as ar-ra'i or يعني the position of that particular companion رضي الله عنهم أجمعين. After the opinion of the Sahaba, there's qiyas, and this qiyas it is a form of ijtihad or striving to reach a conclusion based on evidence found in the Quran and the Sunnah and the ijma of the Sahaba, and it is next in order of importance. The method of reasoning used was a form of analogical deduction. It is called qiyas because it means to compare two things. When you make qiyas between two things, it is like measuring or comparing between them. And based on the similarity between the thing whose ruling is known and the thing whose ruling is not known, you are able to make a ruling in that matter which there is no clear text for in the Qur'an or in the Sunnah. If we found, for example, that there is a ruling in the Qur'an and in the Sunnah 
of al-khamr or alcohol or intoxicant, then by qiyas we may compare the reason for the prohibition of alcohol to any other substance that might have a similar effect and we may come to a conclusion or the scholars will come to the conclusion that since the reason for the prohibition of alcohol is also found in that substance then for the same reason it is also prohibited this is the manner, this is the manner of deriving a ruling called qiyas then there is also many other secondary sources like ihtisan and urf and the customs of the people of Medina and so on which uh, we don't intend to go into detail at this time on all of the sources of Islamic jurisprudence but you may refer to uh, some books that are available in English dealing with this subject of the sources of Islamic law or Islamic jurisprudence and inshallah we will provide uh, a listing or a reference for some of those sources that you may go back to and uh, look at in more detail some of the secondary sources of the Islamic uh, fiqh. Um, for the sake of saving time, inshallah, we will not uh, discuss in detail the biographies of the scholars of fiqh, or the most famous of them, the four imams. I think they are known to all of us, and we can refer to books to know more about their life, or at least a summary of the lives of those imams the famous ones and those who are not so famous from before them or after them. Also, uh, the books of fiqh, there are many in Arabic. Every madhab has many primary sources for that particular madhab. And as well, there are other books of fiqh that are not based on a particular madhab. Um, some of them are comparison between the madhahib. Uh, others like the contemporary book of uh, Sheikh Sayyid Sadiq, Fiqh Sunnah, which is, you can say, not based on any particular uh, legal school, but it is sort of a comparison uh, deriving yani, opinions to a great extent, yani, examining the authentic text from the Quran and Sunnah. Also, inshallah, we should provide a listing of some of the books that are available concerning Fiqh or related to Fiqh, or the study of fiqh and the history of fiqh in English that um, are accessible to us, inshallah, for our further study and research. It is important here, at least briefly, to mention that some of the scholars mentioned the reason of disagreement among the fuqaha or the scholars of fiqh. And one of those great books uh, discuss in detail the reasons for the differences, how those, how those differences came about, and the justification or the yani, defense of the Imams and the great scholars of Islam, uh, the defense of them showing that their differences of opinion was, was not based on their feeling, but it was, it was based on some legitimate and real circumstances that took place during their time. Those reasons are many, and actually whole books have, written, have been written on this topic, but just quickly we will mention the most important, the most obvious of those reasons, and from amongst them is the different interpretation of the Qur'an. Yeah, I mean, sometimes a particular ayah from the Qur'an was understood by two different scholars in a different way. And because they understood it differently, 
then their ruling or the conclusion that they came to based on that ayah was different. Also, sometimes the difference of opinion might have been based on the fact that a certain hadith was known to one scholar and not known to another scholar. So the one who the hadith was known to obviously based his ruling on the hadith of the Prophet while the one who was unknown to based his yeah, decision on other than that and in not having knowledge of that hadith. Sometimes also some scholars use the particular hadith considering it to be authentic while others judged it to be unauthentic or weak and therefore didn't base their ruling on it they left it. Or sometimes uh, some of them considered a hadith to be uh, abrogated by a later saying or practice of the Prophet ﷺ, while others did not consider it so and so on. Sometimes they used to make reconciliation between the evidences that appeared on the surface to be contradictory and some of them made that reconciliation. They came to a conclusion different than the others who tried to reconcile between them. In any case, uh, the reason for the differences are many. They are legitimate reasons. And uh, if we examine the evidences that the scholars used for the conclusions that they came to, then we will see that they used to strive and struggle to look at the evidences found in the Qur'an and in the Sunnah and the Ijma' or the consensus of those who came before them as well as using Qiyas and so on uh, sincerely trying to reach the correct conclusions. And we know that there are many sayings of the scholars, particularly the four Imams, in which they advised their followers and those who would come after them that if an authentic hadith of the Prophet ﷺ was found, then their opinion or their madhab should be based on that hadith. And therefore, we should follow that advice and that instruction and be sincere in seeking correct rulings and accepting the authentic hadith of the Prophet ﷺ or any other authentic and reliable proofs that come to us even if it opposes our previous opinion or that which we uh, have been practicing or following all of our lives or that which we found in our societies or our ancestors or our parents or otherwise. Hopefully during the course of these lectures we, we hope to start with the rules concerning a tahara purification and then go on to as-salat, the rules concerning the prayers, as-zakat, as-siyam, charity and fasting, hajj and so on. And if Allah allows us to cover such topics, at least in brief, then we might also go into some of those topics of Islamic fiqh that um, we don't normally study or we don't find often in the books that are available to us in English concerning other things about buying and selling and marriage and divorce and government and so on. In any case, uh, this is a brief introductory concerning the fiqh, the science of fiqh. And uh, as I said, we hope to study these topics based on examining the authentic hadith of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam and uh, Insha'Allah, we hope that we will take at least a few hadith in each time we meet. And today we would like to start uh, with the topic of At-Tahara. Uh, by taking 
few of the hadith that are mentioned in the beginning of the book. But before doing so, we should start with the hadith that Al-Imam Al-Bukhari began his book with, and so also our book, Taysir Al-Allam, Sharh Umdut Al-Ahkam, begins with the first hadith. It is not related to the book of Tahara, purification, but it is related to the study of Al-Fiqh, or the study of Hadith, or the study of Tafsir, or any other study, and everything that we do in our life is based on the hadith that was reported from Amir al-Mu'mineen, Abi Hafs, Umar ibn Khattab, radiyallahu anhu, he said, Sami'atu Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam yakul, I heard the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam saying, Innama al-a'malu bin-niyat, Verily actions are judged according to intentions. Verily actions are judged according to intentions. As we are studying any of the knowledges or the sciences of Islam, we should keep in mind that actions are judged according to intention. Our intention should be in studying to gain the knowledge of how to please Allah, how to worship Allah, and how to deal with the people around us in this world so that we may earn the pleasure of Allah. Our purpose in studying should be with that intention, and whatever we learn from fiqh, whenever we practice it, we should keep our intention clear and purely for Allah alone. Verily actions are judged according to intentions. وَإِنَّمَا لِكُلِّ مْرِئٍ مَا نَوَى And verily for every person will be that which he intended. Every person will get that which he intended. فَمَنْ كَانَتْ هِجْرَتُهُ إِلَى اللَّهِ وَرَسُولِهِ فَهِجْرَتُهُ إِلَى اللَّهِ وَرَسُولِهِ So whoever made hijrah to Allah and His Messenger, يعني with that as being his intention, then his hijrah would be to Allah and his messenger, that means he would be rewarded as such, as though he really made migration for Allah and his messenger. وَمَنْ كَانَتْ هِجْرَتُهُ لِلدُّنْيَا يُصِيبُهَا And whoever made hijrah for something, to earn something or to achieve something of the world, أَوْ إِمْرَأَةٍ يَنْكِحُهَا فَهِجْرَتُهُ إِلَى مَا هَجْرَ إِلَيْهِ Then his migration or his immigration, it would be judged and it would be rewarded according to his intention, according to what he made hijrah for. This hadith, the shaykh discussed in some detail, but what we want to discuss are those things that we can derive from this hadith as a reminder to us. The first of them is that all actions will be looked at or considered based on the intention for which one performed them. If that intention was correct, or if it was corrupt, or if it was, those actions would be accordingly. If the actions, if his intention is good, then the actions will be accepted as being correct, and otherwise it will be rejected, or it will be complete or incomplete. It will be considered as an act of obedience or disobedience, based on the intention of the person who is doing such. So whoever does any deed seeking to be seen by others for ostentation so that others may praise him, then this is sinful. Whoever made intention to perform jihad in the way of Allah, for example, in order that the word of Allah and the religion of Allah would be uppermost, would be superior in the earth, 
then his reward would be accordingly. Secondly, he said that intention and niyyah is a primary or fundamental condition in any action or deed that we do. No matter even if we do it correctly in its form, according to the Quran and Sunnah, but still a primary and fundamental condition for any deed to be accepted outside of the way that it is performed is its intention, the intention for which one does such an action. Thirdly, the place of intention is in the heart and pronouncing intention is innovation. The place for intention is in the heart. One makes intention in his heart. And whoever says the intention out loud, there is no basis for it in the sunnah. This is bid'ah or innovation. Fourthly, it is necessary that we be warned from ar-riyah and as-sama'ah. That is, that we be warned from doing things to be seen or that others may hear about us or in doing things for some worldly reason rather than doing it for the pleasure of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Whoever does it for riyah to be seen or to be heard or for some worldly reason then he will corrupt or invalidate or nullify it as an act of worship for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Fifthly, the obligation of giving careful attention to the actions of the heart, yeah, I mean looking at our heart and considering the condition or the state of our heart when we are doing any deed, being sure that the heart is clean and pure and that it is purely for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And lastly he mentions that hijrah, since the Prophet sallallahu used this as an example in this hadith, he also mentioned from this hadith we come to know that hijrah from the land of shirk or paganism, those who worship something along with Allah other than Allah, making hijrah from the land of the pagans and the disbelievers to the land of Islam is of the best of deeds or the best of acts of worship as long as the intention for such hijrah is that the person is doing it for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The first hadith that the Shaykh has mentioned is the hadith recorded in Al-Bukhari and Muslim and I didn't uh, have time to find the location in Al-Bukhari but in the explanation of Bukhari and Fatul Bari it is hadith number 6954 for whatever benefit that is as for in the English references you can find it in Sahih Muslim volume 1 page 149 hadith number 435 the hadith of Abu Huraira radiallahu anhu he said that Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said la yaqbalu allahu salata ahadikum idha ahdatha hatta yatawadda la yaqbalu allahu salata ahadikum idha ahdatha hatta yatawadda that Allah does not accept the salat of any one of you if he has nullified his state of purification, anyone who nullified his state of purification in any way, by wind, passing wind, urination, defecation, or other such things, 
that invalidate the state of purification, Allah does not accept the salat of anyone who has nullified his state of purification until he makes wudu, hatta yatawadda. And of course that also means if it is the person is in a major state of impurity from sexual relations between husband and wife or the monthly, monthly uh, state of menses of the woman or after childbirth and so on, then al-wudu uh, is not sufficient but al-ghusl is required. And the point is that Allah does not accept the salat of anyone who has invalidated their state of purification until they purify themselves. And this is very important and this is one of the reasons why we have to study the book of Tahara purification before we study As-Salat. Because perhaps if we are not purifying ourselves properly, if we are not making wudu properly, if we are not making al-ghusl properly, then we might be performing Salat, but that Salat is not accepted. Because the Salat is not accepted from anyone who has invalidated his state of purification until he makes wudu. And the Shaykh here mentions the expression of the Prophet ﷺ, that Allah doesn't accept. He said that this type of expression is more comprehensive in its meaning than if Allah or if the Prophet ﷺ has said, do not pray while you are not in a state of purification. And if he said, la tusalli, don't pray while you are not in a state of purification, then that means he is prohibiting you. But when he says that Allah does not accept the prayer until you are in a state of purification, then that means you get two benefits. The first of them, that you must be in a state of purification. Therefore, you cannot pray. Don't pray until you are in a state of purification. And the second thing you understand from this expression is that even if you did pray, then Allah will not accept your prayer. If the Prophet ﷺ had said, don't pray, perhaps some people would pray anyway. But you should know, not only are you prohibited from praying, but even if you do pray, it will not be accepted. Also, he said that ahdatha, إِذَا ahdatha, If anyone nullifies his state of purification, this means by those things that come from the front or the back, urination, defecation, and so on, and other such things that are the nawaqid of wudu or the nullifiers of wudu. Uh, then he says, the general meaning of this hadith is that the legislator, al-shari al-hakim, the wise legislator, who made the laws that we are living according to, has guided the person who wants to perform salat to the fact that no one should enter the prayer except that he is in a good condition and in a good state, proper state, before he enters that prayer. Because this prayer is actually the connection or the connector between Ar-Rabb wa Abdihi. It is the connector between Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and His servants. Therefore, before you try to connect yourself to Allah in this salat, make sure you are in the proper state, in the proper state to join to Allah, to connect to Allah. Not to become one with Allah, but to be in communication with Allah through the salat. He said that this is the way, the salat is the way to communication with Allah. And for this reason, we have been ordered with wudu. And we have, ordered to be, we, have, we have been ordered to be in a state of purification for the performance of prayer. And we have been informed 
that whoever performs the prayer without being in a state of purification, then that prayer is rejected and it is not accepted. From this hadith, he said, there are four points that we can derive from this hadith. لا يقبل الله صلاة أحدكم إذا أحدث حتى يتوضأ. The first one is that the salat of the person who has nullified his state of purification is not accepted until he purifies himself from both al-hadathain, al-akbar wal-asghar. Major impurity as well as minor impurity. The salat of the person who has invalidated his state of purification is not accepted until he purifies himself from these two both conditions. Perhaps he only needs to purify himself from one of them. He is not in a major state of impurity, so he is only in a minor state of impurity, he has to do one of them, wudu. But if he is in a, a major state of impurity, then he has to relieve both of them, major and minor state. And that's why when you make ghusl, we will learn, inshallah, when we reach the hadith of the Prophet ﷺ about al-ghusl, that the Prophet ﷺ used to perform al-wudu as a part of al-ghusl. He used to perform them together as one. Also, the second point, he said that this state of nullification of purification by passing wind or going to the bathroom to urinate or defecate and so on, that this is one of the things that nullifies the wudu and it also invalidates the salat if a person came into that state while he was praying. If a person while praying did any of these things, then the salat became invalid. It became invalid. So it is a nullifier of wudu, and it is an, a, uh, it makes the salat itself invalid if the person is performing the salat when that condition came over him. The third point he said we derive from this hadith is that the intended meaning here, when the Prophet ﷺ said, لا يقبل الله الصلاة أحدكم That Allah doesn't accept. عدم القبول That Allah doesn't accept the salat. It means here two things. It means عدم صحة الصلاة وعدم إجزائها. It means two things. One, it means that the salat itself is incorrect. It's incorrect. And it also means that that salat does not fulfill the obligation that is upon the person when the time for the prayer came. The meaning of this is as such. It's possible that a person might perform the prayer with wudu and properly performing the prayer, but Allah does not accept it for some other reason that's possible. Yet, Sahara fulfilling all of its conditions for some other reason outside of that Allah might not accept it but on Yawm Qiyamah he will not be called to account for not performing the prayer he did perform it he fulfilled his obligation even though Allah might not accept it I will give you an example that inshallah will make it more clear the Prophet wasallam said that a person who goes to the soothsayers who believes those people fortune tellers and such Allah does not accept his prayer for 40 days. That person, for 40 days, Allah doesn't accept his prayer. 
But he is still required to pray. If he didn't pray during those 40 days, then also he will be accountable for committing the sin of not performing the obligation of that prayer which came upon him at that time. So there are two things here. Fulfilling the obligation of praying, as well as whether or not Allah accepts your prayer. Everyone who performs the prayer, he's fulfilled his obligation, he prays. But whether or not Allah accepts it is another matter. Whether or not Allah accepts it is another matter. So here, when the Prophet ﷺ said that Allah doesn't accept the prayer of one of you, when he invalidates his state of purification until he makes wudu, then there are two things meant here. One, that the prayer itself is invalid because he's not in wudu. And secondly, Allah doesn't give him credit for performing the prayer. He doesn't get credit for performing the prayer. If he's not in a state of purification. No one should pray when he's not in a state of purification. But the one who, in that other state, the one who, for example, when believe the soothsayers or such as this, who Allah doesn't accept their prayer, that is, he doesn't give them any reward for it, but still they have fulfilled the obligation to pray and they're required to pray. The fourth and final point that he derived from this hadith is that that this hadith indicates or points to the fact that at tahara or the state of purification, it is a shart, a primary precondition for the correctness of the salat. Yani tahara is a precondition for the correctness of salat. There are some things that are, for example, the arkan of salat the main important points of the Salat or the wajibat of Salat the obligatory things in the Salat the sunnah of Salat those extra things of the Salat and so on but there are other conditions that have to be fulfilled before we even enter the Salat itself one of them is a tahara that a person has to be in a state of tahara of the other primary conditions is that the place where you pray has to be clean the time for the Salat has to be in and other such things so that this hadith indicates that a tahara or purification or the state of purification is actually one of the preconditions, fundamental conditions that a person has to fulfill before you even begin the prayer itself. The next hadith that he mentions, hadith number three in its order, because the first hadith was about intentions. The next hadith is the hadith found in Al-Bukhari and Muslim. And Al-Bukhari is in volume 1, page 116, hadith number 166. And in Muslim, in volume 1, Sahih Muslim, page 154 through 155, there are a number of narrations. Hadith number uh, 464, 468, 470, 71, 73, and so on. There are a number of narrations in Sahih Muslim. And it was the minhaj or the methodology of Imam Muslim that he used to collect all of the hadith related to a particular item or a particular issue, he used to collect them all in one place. And he used to narrate them, every one of them together, even if there was only a slight difference in the wording, even one word different. He used to bring them together. You can compare the different narrations uh, in one place. Whereas Imam al-Bukhari, he used to narrate similar hadith in different places in his book, in various different chapters. And sometimes he used to take parts of a hadith and narrate it in one place and another part in another place. As for Imam Muslim, it was his habit to narrate all similar hadith that had any slight different wording in the same place. So you will find here in this particular section, you will find many narrations of this hadith. 
some of them slightly different. Sometimes the isnad or the chain of narratives was slightly different. He brought them all together in one place. This hadith is reported on the authority of Abdullah ibn Amr ibn al-As radiallahu anhuma, may Allah be pleased with him and his father. It was also reported by Abu Huraira radiallahu anhu and Aisha radiallahu anha. They said, قَالَ رَسُولُ اللَّهِ صَلَّى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمَ وَيْلُ لِلْأَعْقَابِ مِنَ النَّارِ وَيْلُ لِلْأَعْقَابِ مِنَ النَّارِ it has been translated differently in various different books. I don't know what's the best way to translate it. We can say that it means woe to the heels from the fire. It is like a warning or a threat of the punishment of fire to the person when they perform al wudu and they don't wash every part of their body and specifically the Prophet ﷺ mentioned the heels, the back and part of the foot which is the most likely place that would be missed if a person is not giving complete full attention to the performance of wudu. The last part of the foot in the back, the heel, it is commonly missed and for that reason it happened once when they were on a journey the Prophet ﷺ saw some people that there was a small area of the, of the back of their foot left dry. They missed it when they made wudu. And the Prophet ﷺ called out to them. He shouted out to them three times. Waylul lil aqabi min al-nar. Waylul lil aqabi min al-nar. Also, some of the scholars, like Al-Hafiz ibn Hajj al-Asqalani, said that the meaning of wail, and also it came in the Quran, some of the scholars of tafsir, they said that wail is a valley in Jahannam. It is a valley in the hellfire. One of the most terrible places in the hellfire. And we can also translate it in this way, that this place, this valley in the hellfire will be for those people who leave the heel or the back part of their foot dry when they are making uh, al-wudu. And in the same way, we can understand that this is a general instruction to be careful and to give care to the performance of wudu, not only the back of the foot, but any other place that might be likely to be missed, we should be careful in, in the performance of the wudu and ghusl and so on, so that our purification will be complete and correct and acceptable, so that the ibadah or the worship that we perform with that state of purification will also be acceptable. Uh, here, the shaykh, he says, from this hadith, there are some words, that need to be explained. One of them is wail. He said, wail means al-azab wal-halak. It means punishment and destruction. And also he said, aqab. It is the plural of aqab. And it means the end part of the foot. But the meaning here is the person. Not the foot will be in the fire. But the person himself will be punished by the fire. So woe to the heels. It means woe to those people who didn't wash themselves properly, woe to them. The punishment or the destruction of hellfire is for them. He says that in this hadith, the Prophet ﷺ is warning us of taking lightly the obligation or the command to perform wudu and falling short in performing it properly and correctly and completely. The Prophet ﷺ is warning us from taking it as a light matter 
Some people are making wudu and they are not given attention to it. Perhaps they are in a hurry. As well, as it was mentioned in another hadith of the Prophet ﷺ, that the time for Asr came upon them and they were rushing to perform their wudu. And they left the heels of their foot untouched. And the Prophet ﷺ warned them, warned them about this. Sometimes we may be rushing to perform wudu. We are late for the salat. And we don't give attention to perform the wudu properly. There is no benefit in rushing through the wudu to get to the salat. The salat that would not be accepted if the wudu is not accepted. So this is a warning to us not to take the command to perform wudu lightly. Not to fall short in it. And it is also an encouragement to give attention to performing it perfectly and completely. And he said since the end of the foot or the back part of the foot usually it is the place that the water might not reach. So it would be the problem or the cause of the tahara or the state of purification being incomplete and the salat being unaccepted. For this reason, this, in this hadith, the Prophet ﷺ mentioned that the punishment would be for the heels. But it would not just be for the heels, but it would be for the people who have taken the matter of wudu lightly and they have not performed the Islamically, uh, yani the Islamic uh, act of purification. They have not performed it properly according to the Sharia. The Shaykh here mentions of those things that we can derive from this hadith, he mentions three, or three main ones, and he says the first of them that we derive from this hadith is the obligation of giving attention in the performance of wudu to every part of the wudu. Every part of it is important. Not just the face is important, but also the feet are important. The arm is important. The hand up to the elbow and including the elbow is important. Washing the ears properly inside and outside is important. Every aspect of the wudu is important. And so it is obligatory on us to give attention to such and not to allow any fault to be in our wudu or incompleteness. This hadith mentioned specifically the feet but we may mention or we may say by qiyas that it also includes the other parts of wudu or if not we can look to other hadith which mentions the other parts of wudu also. Secondly he said that this terrible threat of wail of destruction or punishment or the valley in hellfire for the one uh, who is mentioned here it is due to the person uh, falling short in his performance of wudu. This terrible threat is simply because the person fell short in the complete and perfect performance of wudu. Even though they performed the wudu, but they fell short in it. And thirdly, he said that it is obligatory uh, to wash the two feet, to wash them in wudu, not just to wipe. Of course, al-masah is permissible and legal and from the sunnah for the person who fulfills its conditions. And we will come to that later as a separate chapter. The person who performed wudu and they put on their socks while their feet were clean, then they may wipe over their socks without taking off their socks to wash their feet for a period of one day and one night. 
if they are residents and three days and three nights if they are travelers. But outside of that case, the initial wudu, it is obligatory to wash the feet, both of them in wudu. And this is what has been supported by the authentic evidences and it is also confirmed by ijma of the Muslim Ummah, consensus of the Muslim Ummah, except for those who differed on this matter and again those who differed were the Shia who opposed and conflicted the rest and conflicted with the rest of the Muslim Ummah and they also fell in conflict or in contradiction to the authentic confirmed hadith of the Prophet based on his practice as well as that which he taught his companions they said and he doesn't mention that here but we are just adding they said that in wudu the person only has to wipe the feet wipe there's no need to wash the feet this is the madhab of the rafida the shia this is based on their misunderstanding because their hearts have been corrupted since they deviated from the Quran and the Sunnah then they interpreted wrongly the verse of Quran of Wudu where Allah says يَا يُهْلَذِينَ آمَنُوا إِذَا قُمْتُمْ إِلَى الصَّلَاةِ فَاغْسِلُوا وُجُوهَكُمْ وَأَيْدِيَكُمْ وُجُوهَكُمْ وَالْفَتْحَ وُجُوهَكُمْ وَأَيْدِيَكُمْ وَالْفَتْحَ that means wash your faces and hands wash them فَاغْسِلُوا wash that means ghusl, not wiping. وَمْسَهُ بِرُؤُسِكُمْ بِرُؤُسِكُمْ with kasra. With kasra. The wiping is for the head. Wiping. وَمْسَهُ بِرُؤُسِكُمْ وَأَرْجُولَكُمْ with fatha. أَرْجُولَكُمْ The fatha here is because it is included with وُجُوهَكُمْ وَأَيْدِيَكُمْ وَأَرْجُولَكُمْ That means it's under the ruling of washing. Washing the face and the hands and the feet. They said, وَأَرْجُولِكُمْ with kasra. That means it's joined to wiping the head. They said, wipe your feet. Even though the Prophet ﷺ is confirmed in numerous authentic hadith that he used to wash his feet. And he taught his companions to wash their feet. And they used to wash their feet. Still those people, they said, no. أَرْجُولِكُمْ they, they said, only wiping your feet. So the wiping, the washing of the feet is obligatory in wudu. Uh, except in the case of al-masah, wiping, in the case of the one who washed his feet already and put on his socks, then he has a period of one day and one, a night as a resident, and three days and three nights as a traveler. And this is based on the practice of the Prophet ﷺ and his instruction to his companions. Uh, now it is uh, time, almost time for the adhan. I don't know if we can do one more hadith. Uh, Insha'Allah, let us try, because there, there's so much to cover in the book of Tahara. Insha'Allah, we'll try quickly to mention some of the points from this hadith. The third or the fourth hadith is the hadith reported in Al-Bukhari and Muslim and Sahih Muslim. It's in volume 1, page 153, hadith number 460. And in Al-Bukhari, volume 1, page 114, hadith number 163. Insha'Allah, please go back to these hadith and review them and uh, think about them and try to benefit Insha'Allah, by practicing that which we are reading in these hadith. It is reported on the authority of Abu Hurair radiallahu anhu that Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said, إِذَا تَوَضَّعَ أَحَدُكُمْ فَلْيَجْعَلْ فِي أَنْفِهِ مَاءً And in the uh, narration of Bukhari, he said, فَلْيَجْعَلْ فِي أَنْفِهِ And he didn't mention man. That is, if any one of you makes wudu, 
then he must sal yaj'al he must he is ordered to put water into his nose thumma liyastanfir and in bukhari he said thumma liyanfur the meaning being the same then he should blow it out wa man istajmara falyutir and whoever makes istijmar that is cleaning themselves uh istinja with stones or solid things other than water whoever makes istijma falyutir then he should do it an odd number of times odd number not twice or four times but three or five or seven and so on wa idha istayqaba ahadukum min nawmihi falyaghsil yadayhi and in bukhari he said falyaghsil yadahu qabla an yudkhilahuma aw qabla an yudkhilaha fi al-ina'i thalathan and in bukhari he said fi wudu'ihi and if any one of you wakes up from sleep then he must wash his hand or his hands before he puts his hand into the container or before he puts his hand into wudu'ihi that is the water that he uses for wudu before he sticks his hand in there when he woke up from sleep he should wash his hand three times thalathan fa inna ahadukum la yadri aina batat yaduhu for no one of you knows where his hand has been during his sleep uh this hadith in brief he says that this hadith has three parts it has three different instructions and each of them has a separate ruling particular to that part of the hadith first he mentioned that the person who makes wudu if he begins his wudu he must put water in his nose yani during the performance of wudu in this hadith he mentioned that one of the aspects of wudu and he mentioned it by the command form fal yaj'al fi anfihi ma'an then he must put water in his, into his nose in this hadith we came to know that putting water in the nose is one of the specifics or the details of wudu that a person must perform then he must cause that water to come out or blow it out and this is called istinshaq and putting the water in the nose is called istinsar and this is obligatory as the nose is part of the face and the face we have been ordered to wash it is mentioned yani it is mentioned specifically in the quran to wash the face and the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam made us to know that part of the face is the nose and just as it is obligatory to wash the face it is also obligatory to wash the nose Um, and there are many hadith besides this hadith which prove such the second part of this hadith he mentioned also that whoever wants to remove the uncleanliness from his body after having went to the bathroom and he doesn't have water to use he intends to use stones or other such matter that's permissible to clean oneself with then he should use an odd number of stones or such matter and the least of it should be 
and the most of it is whatever is necessary as long as it's an odd number to completely and properly clean oneself. And if the person finish cleaning themselves properly and completely on an even number, then they should use one more stone to make it odd. This is istijmar or using other than water in the place of water to clean oneself the private parts after using the toilet. The third part of this hadith he mentions here about the person who awakes from sleep in the night that they should not put their hand in the container and they should not touch anything with their hand anything wet or moist until they wash their hand three times. And then there is a discussion about this aspect of the hadith which it's not necessary that we go into detail but inshallah in those rulings that we derive from the hadith it will be mentioned uh, the difference of opinion amongst the scholars over whether or not this hadith is in reference to the person who awakes from sleep in the night or even if they are awake from sleep in the day. Because perhaps some people sleep in the day, not in the night. Maybe they work at night and they sleep in the day. Some scholars said that this hadith is, is particularly in reference to the person who awakes from sleep in the night. And it's not applicable to the day. And they brought their arguments for their uh, position. And the others who differed with them also brought their arguments. And Allah knows best. But perhaps uh, yeah, in the safest position is to wash your hands three times when you awake from sleep before making wudu or before taking anything to eat or touching any such matter uh, whether it's from the night or the day and the, yeah, and the details of this, this discussion perhaps at another time if it's necessary we can discuss it in more detail uh, also there was a difference of opinion amongst the scholars as to whether or not washing the hands when one awakens from the sleep is obligatory or is it mustahab recommended or commendable and the opinion of the majority of scholars is that it's mustahab not obligatory but it is highly recommended, it is commendable, it is rewardable. Uh, and this is the opinion of the majority, while others said no, it is obligatory. In any case, in closing, the Sheikh mentions, uh, and the Adhan is upon us now, the Sheikh mentions nine points that are derived from this hadith. Nine points. The first of them is the obligation of istinshaq and ist that is of taking water into the nose and blowing it out the second is that the nose is part of the face in wudu that washing the face in wudu requires also washing the nose and this is based on this hadith along with the ayah of the Quran وجوهكم, wash your faces the third point is the uh, legally legislated act in istinja, the person who is washing the private parts after relieving oneself at the toilet, that it is a legally legislated act to use stones or pebbles to clean oneself. This is legislated in Islam. And that it should be an odd number of times. The sunnah uh, is at least three. Uh, also, he said that Al-Hafiz ibn Hajj al-Asqalani mentioned that some of the scholars have derived from this hadith 
that the place of istinja, the private area that is washed in istinja, has a special permission that you may do more than three times. Whereas in normally in any in the other acts of purification, for example, you are washing your hands three times, rinsing your mouth three times, rinsing your nose, nose three times, washing the hands up to the elbows three times, washing the feet three times. The Prophet ﷺ said, whoever does more than this, فَقَدْ أَسَاءَ then he has done something evil or wrong to do more than that. But here, Al-Hafiz says that in Istinja with stones, even though the Sunnah is three times, it is more specifically required that it has to be an odd number. And in that case, whatever amount the person needs, as long as it's odd, he may increase on that three as much as uh, is necessary. This is a special permission related to Al-Istijmar. The fifth point he says the, uh, that it is legislated to wash the hands when awaking from sleep in the night. And we already mentioned that there is some difference of opinion. Some of them said even from the day. And also the obligation of washing the hands for some of them, the majority said that it is mustahab or recommended, not absolutely obligatory. The sixth point is the obligation of al-wudu min al-nawm. From this hadith it is understood that a person who awakes from sleep must make wudu if they are going to perform an act of ibadah that requires wudu like salat and so on that if you woke up from sleep you must make wudu and you must wash your hands three times before, before putting your hand fi wudu'ihi in his water of wudu before performing that wudu he should wash his hands outside of the water before sticking his hand in the water of wudu to perform the wudu itself seventh he said the prohibition of sticking one's hand in the container before washing it. And this is either a prohibition يعني, that's called tahreem or kirahiyah. It is something that's absolutely prohibited or it is something makru, detestable, undesirable. The prohibition of putting one's hand in the water, it is either, either absolutely prohibited or it is at least makru or detestable. And this is based on the difference of opinion. Is the washing the hand whoop? Wajib or is it mustahab? If it's wajib, then it's haram to put your hand in there. And those who said that it's mustahab, then it's makruh or detestable to put your hand in there. Uh, and he said that the apparent reason for the legislation of washing the hands before making wudu is simply for an nawafa, cleanliness. Because you don't know where your hands have been. Perhaps your hands have touched something unclean before sticking it in the water of wudu. You should wash them. Then he said, uh, finally, the saying of the Prophet Sallallahu when anyone wakes up, it appears as, as though this is part of, as, as though this is one hadith with the first part of the hadith, because Imam al-Bukhari has narrated as one hadith, as we read it today as one hadith. But actually, Imam Muslim, he has narrated as two hadith. And also in the Muwatta of Imam Malik, he has narrated as two separate hadith. This last part, if anyone wakes up from sleep, then he must wash his hands three times before sticking it in the water of wudu. And Imam Muslim narrated that as a separate hadith. And, al- and al- Imam Malik in his Muwatta also narrated as a separate, separate hadith, so that these are two hadith. And Al-Bukhari narrated them as one hadith. And Al-Hafiz ibn Hajj al-Asqalani said in the Sharh of Sahih al-Bukhari that perhaps the reason for Al-Imam Bukhari doing so was because the isnad of the hadith was one. Both of those hadith came with one isnad, the same isnad. 
and he believed or he it was his opinion al bukhari it was his opinion that is permissible to join two hadith which are related by the same isnad to join them together as it was his opinion of separating a hadith into parts and narrating part of it under one chapter according to the wording that's related to a certain point and narrating another part of it in another chapter according to the rest of the hadith which may bring a new ruling related to another topic so that was imam al bukhari's uh, his um, manhaj or his manner or his way of joining hadith or separating hadith according to the statement al hafiz ibn hajj al-asqalani uh, inshallah i hope that these hadith I mean, are somewhat clear to us and i also expect that everyone should uh, return um, to these hadith in those books that we refer to in Al-Bukhari and Muslim and other places where you may find them and uh, inshallah we will pass out a copy of the uh, or a listing of the text of the hadith which we covered this evening um, so that you may easily refer to them uh, and I hope that inshallah if there are any yeah, any points that are left unclear if we cannot uh, discuss them this evening then the next time we meet inshallah we will start with those points that are not clear before we go on to new hadith uh, also if someone can take to the sisters uh, some copies of this uh, paper inshallah <laughs>